Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is our time to go through verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. And our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. I want you to imagine that you're at a dinner, and there are a bunch of people at this table, but particularly across from you are three individuals. And these individuals all grew up in church. They all had Christian, came from Christian homes. But as you sit there and you look at them and talk to them, you realize that they have three different responses to the gospel. On your left, you have a person who who claims to be an atheist, or at least an agnostic. And so he's joking around and kind of mocking the the Bible, and he says, oh, you you guys still believe in all those fairy tales? Then you have a person on your right who who loves the Lord, and this person got up early that morning and, and started praying for some of those around the table who don't know Christ, and he reads his Bible, and he communes with the Lord, and He has a burden to share the gospel with the lost. Then right across from you in the middle, you have a person who who grew up in the same situation, the same environment. He has a testimony of faith in the Lord. He knows the doctrinal answers. He goes to church. But he goes seemingly for his own benefit. He wants to be around his friends, or maybe it's about listening to his style of music. He has a sort of pride in his life and arrogance. He's, he's critical of other people. His conversations are about why he doesn't like this church and why he doesn't agree with that pastor. And so he has this spiritual immaturity. So there you have three different people, three different responses really to the word of God. One rejects the word. One believes and, and follows the Lord, lives for the glory of God. And another one is a believer, listens to the word, but there's immaturity. And I believe all three of those individuals can be found here in our text this morning. And I think probably all three of those individuals can be found in our service this morning. And the question is, why do people respond differently to God's word? Why do people respond differently to the, the Holy Spirit's work in their heart? Why do you have some people who who can sit in a service like this and and they don't care? The words mean nothing to them. They're they're indifferent. This is boring. This is meaningless to them. Then you have other people who who can sit here in the service and they sing and they listen to the preaching of God's word and they rejoice. They might cry. They might cry out for joy, but they respond with this faith. And you have some people who, who believe the gospel, but when they leave, they're They're critical of this or that, and they're immature. Well, the answer to those questions are found here in our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through chapter 3, verse 4. And according to this text, your response to the word of God depends on the spiritual condition of your heart. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through Chapter 3, verse 4, teaches us that your response to the word of God depends on the spiritual condition of your heart. The context of these 
two chapters, chapter 1 and 2, is about the preaching of God's word in the local church. And so our question is here, why do some people respond one way and other people respond another way? Well, here we see three responses to the word of God. And the first response that we're going to look at here this morning is the response from the, the natural person. And a natural person rejects the word because his inner person is spiritually dead. The natural person rejects the word because his inner person is spiritually dead. If you're taking notes this morning, that's our first point. The first response to the word of God. Look at verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 reads, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The natural person is the one who has been naturally born, but has never been supernaturally born. Jesus talked about supernatural birth to a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 6, he said this, I have it on the screen up here, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, you are physically alive because you were physically born. And so all of us have a physical, natural birthday. And then he goes on to say that which is born of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, is spirit. So like begets like. And he said, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. In other words, you need to have a spiritual birthday to have spiritual life. Only those who have been spiritually born again are the ones who are spiritually alive, are the ones who have their sins forgiven, are the ones who are in the spiritual family of God, are the ones who have eternal life. You must be born again. So how does a person become born again? Well, it's when the Spirit of God works in your heart in such a way that he convicts you of your sin. You realize that you're a sinner. And the word of God is preached and you realize Jesus is the only savior and you turn from your sin and you believe in Jesus Christ. You surrender your life to him. That's why Jesus followed that up by saying this, the son of man, speaking of himself, must be lifted up. Why? That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, the father gave up his son to die so you could be in his family. And that can only happen when you respond to the Spirit's work in your heart and you turn in faith to Christ. Some hear that message, though, and they, they reject that. They reject God's word. They want to live life as their own God. They don't want to give up their sin. And so they remain as a natural person. The Holy Spirit hasn't given them spiritual life. They reject the word of God. So that's why in verse 14, the Bible says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now, the question is, what are those things? In verse 14, what are the things of the Spirit of God? Well, actually, that answer is found in the whole chapter here. If we go through all of chapter 2, we can see all of those things. In fact, let's just do a flyover of chapter 2 and let's see these things of the Spirit of God. Look in verse 1. 
these things in verse 1 of chapter 2 are the testimonies of God. Testimonies of God preached. So it's, it's a, the message of a preacher who puts God on the witness stand and God testifies for himself as that preacher declares the word. And then verse 2, the central message to these things is Christ and him crucified. Verse 4, these things are spoken in words. Look at verse 4. My speech, that's the Greek word for logos or words, my words and my message were in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So these are words empowered by the Holy Spirit. How about verses 6 and 7? These things are the Father's wisdom decreed before time. How about verse 11? These things are the deep and infinite thoughts of God, and no one can know them except God. That's why only the Holy Spirit can reveal them, because he's God. And then in verse 12, these things are freely given to us by God through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, these things are spoken in words. We impart, we speak this in words, later on in the verse, taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual truths with spiritual words. That last part there is the NIV translation, which I think does a better job than the ESV here. And the point is this, that these, that these things here are the Father's thoughts, His wisdom that no one can know and discover on their own, inscripturated for us in the, the Bible and these written words here by the superintending power of the Holy Spirit. So the Bible teaches that God the Father directed the Holy Spirit to move in the minds of human authors so that they would write down the very words of God composed by, according to their own personalities, with their own personalities, their own culture, but they wrote down the very words of God without error in a, the original documents. But I want you to notice when we talk about the word of God, consider the, the triune nature of God. God is one being existing in three persons. So when we talk about the word of God, we're talking about the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You actually could say that this right here is the, the word of the triune God. The words of Christ energized by the spirit sourced in the father's wisdom. So what's the simple definition of the things of God? What is it? It's the word of God. So we could say this in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the word of God. That's the, the things of the spirit. And what does it mean to accept? Well, it means to, to welcome, to greet with the hand. The picture is of someone coming and knocking on your door, and you open the door. And instead of putting your hand out to greet them and invite them inside, to welcome them inside, you don't extend the hand, you give them the hand, right? You, you reject them. You tell them, get off my property, get away from me. And that's what it's talking about here. They reject, they turn the word of God away. And in what regard do natural people reject the word of God? Well, they reject the authority of God. They, they reject the accuracy, or I should say they reject the authority of God's word. They reject the accuracy of God's word. They reject the, the wisdom of God's word. 
They reject the sufficiency of God's word. They reject Jesus as the Lord of God's word and the Lord of their lives. And ultimately, they are rejecting the triune God himself because they want to live life their own way and don't want God to rule over them. And so that leads us really to the next question, why? Why do natural people respond that way? And the answer is because their inner person is spiritually empty. It's dead. Verse 14, notice verse 14. Verse 14, we see two reasons. Two reasons the natural person rejects God's word. The natural person does not accept, does not welcome the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. This is the first reason. They're foolishness to him. The natural person considers submission to God and to his spirit and to the word of Christ as foolish. It's because they live in the natural world and all they see is through natural eyes. Life for them is about this natural world. It's about their house. It's about their family. It's about their money. It's about the next fun thing that they can do. It's about themselves. And they are unwilling to submit themselves to God and to his word and have God rule over their lives. And they consider all of that to be foolishness. They're like the rich man in Luke chapter 16 who lived life for himself in luxury The world viewed him as a wise, shrewd man. But then suddenly he died. The Bible says he woke up in hell in torments. And he looked up to heaven and he cried out for just a drop of water to touch his tongue. And at that moment, when he died, he was found to be a fool. No longer is he the wise man. He's the foolish man. And all of us will have that sudden day, that day of death. And that day will reveal who the foolish truly are. So the first reason that they consider the word of God as foolishness. The second reason is found in verse 14. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Discerned means to judge, to examine to determine what something is. We went to someone's house uh, about two weeks ago, and they had a bowl full of rocks. And they were cool-looking rocks. Our kids went and picked them up and looked at them. But honestly, as we picked them up, we had no clue what kind of rocks they were. Some glistened. Some had definitely, clearly some kind of fossils in them. But we didn't know anything about these rocks. And the owner of the house came over, and he picked up the rocks, he began to discern the rocks and tell us what they were. He was geologically discerned. That's what it's talking about here, that the things of the Spirit can only be discerned by those who have the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Those with the Holy Spirit can look at the Word of God and discern spiritual realities, but the natural man does not have the Spirit, so he cannot discern the Word of God. He doesn't value the things of God. Verse 14 says the natural man does not understand them. He's in a continual state of ignorance to spiritual reality. And again, it's not that they can't read the Bible and know what certain words mean. It's not that they can't know the doctrines of the scripture. A natural person could have 
a, a PhD in theology. He could be in seminary and still be a natural man. Not able to understand means that they don't understand the eternal values of God's word. Their inner person has no true desire for God's word. I remember during COVID that some people lost their taste. Any of you lost, lose your taste during COVID, if you got COVID? That's a bummer, isn't it? And, you know, it changes your appetite when that happens. You can still eat food, but you can't taste food. You can't taste the cookie. So why eat the cookie, right? It changes things. In the same way, the people of the world can, can eat the word of God. In other words, they can, they, can, they can digest the word of God, but they can't taste it. The Bible describes God's word like something we taste, something we delight in. Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 1, verse 2 says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 19.10, God's word is sweeter also than honey. And so for those with the spirit, we have the spiritual taste buds to delight in God's word and the spiritual things of God. But natural people, they can eat, if you want to say it that way, they can eat the word, but they can't taste the goodness of God. That's the natural man. Next, we have the spirit-born person, the spiritual person. The first response is the natural person rejects God's word, but a spirit-born person can discern with the word because he has the mind of Christ. Look at verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now these two verses, unfortunately, are widely misinterpreted and misused. So we want to be careful as we go through these verses. Verses 15 and 16 are speaking of all Christians. In other words, the spiritual person here is not a person on a higher level of spirituality. It's not like we have the spiritual persons who sit down here and then there's everybody else that are Christians. Every true believer in Jesus Christ is a spiritual person because they have the Holy Spirit. That's what it's talking about. It doesn't mean we all submit to the Holy Spirit every day, every moment. Right? We all have times where we, we say no to the Holy Spirit. We quench the Holy Spirit. But the idea is we all have the Holy Spirit. So there's a, there's a false teaching out there that you have the spiritual Christians, then you have the carnal Christians, and hopefully you can become a spiritual. That's false, okay? If that's in a book that you're reading, you can scratch that out. That's not what the Bible teaches. This is speaking about all Christians. Look at verse 12, actually. He says, we have received the Spirit from God. So we've already received the indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So then in verse 15, the spiritual person, the one who has been born again, judges all things. This word judges is the same Greek word found in verse 14 as discern. So the contrast is between the unbeliever who is unable to discern 
and the believer who is able to discern spiritual realities. So verse 15 teaches us that the believer who has the spirit has the ability to utilize the word of God to discern, to, to judge the spiritual realities. So look at verse 15. The spiritual per- person judges, he discerns all things. He discerns spiritual values with the word of God, but is himself to be judged by no one. Now, some have used this to say that no one can judge me. See, look at 1 Corinthians 2.15. Don't judge me. Well, it doesn't mean that. There's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, in chapter 3, Paul actually judges the church. And then actually in chapter 5, he commands the church to make a judgment about a believer in the church and to have them removed from church membership. So verse 15 is not talking about that no one's allowed to judge you. It actually means that unbelievers cannot make judgments, cannot discern the ways of believers. It's like the guy that comes off the street, and maybe he goes into a hospital. I know this probably wouldn't really happen, but he goes into a hospital, and he he goes to the glass there, and there's a surgeon, and he's doing some surgery. This guy's there, and he taps on the window while the surgeon's doing his stuff, and he goes, oh, I think you're thinking you're making a mistake. What? Like, that guy behind the window cannot discern the the realities of the surgeon, what he's doing, because he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Or how about the mechanic who's working on an engine, and there's a person who has no clue about cars, and that person comes up, and he says, hey, aren't you supposed to do something with this doohickey here? And the mechanic should not be examined by that man because that man has no clue about engines. That's what it's talking about. In the same way that the world cannot examine Christian, in the same way the world cannot examine Christians or the ways of the Lord found in the word because they don't understand the spiritual realities. It's like, it's like doing a, 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 a taste test for food. If you've never tasted the food, you can't really judge the quality of the food, can you? So why is it that the world is not able to discern the values of the way of the Lord, but we are? Well, he says in verse number 16, because we have the mind of Christ. Look at verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Verse 16 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. If you remember that passage, Isaiah 40, it's the glorious passage where God shows how stupid we all truly are. There's question after question after question, and we realize we're dumber and dumber and dumber, and God is greater and wiser than we could ever imagine. Isaiah 40 is the chapter that the song, Behold Our God, is based off of. And so Paul quotes Isaiah 40, 13 to ask this, who has understood the mind of the Lord, of Yahweh? That's the the name for the triune God. Who has understood the the, the mind of Yahweh so as to instruct him? And in Isaiah 40, the answer to that is no one. But here's the amazing thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verse 16, the answer is, we do. That's the shocking thing about this. If you go to Isaiah chapter 40 and you read that, you come to the end, you go, I don't know anything. But here he says, we understand the mind of the Lord. Why? Because we have the mind of Christ. 
Now, what does that mean? Because a lot of people look at that, and they take that out of context. Oh, I, God spoke to me the other day and said this, and, you know, I have the mind of Christ. That's not what it's talking about. It's not that you're going to receive some kind of new revelation from God or that you know everything about God. This is speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit using the word of God to so renew your mind, to so change your thinking and change your attitudes that we can say we have the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind was that? That was a mind of humility. That was a mind of giving up his rights. Why? For the glory of God and for the good of his church. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern. There's our word discern. What is the will of God? So we can discern what God wants us to do, how with a mind that's transformed with the word of God, by the spirit of God. So this church is why it's so important for us to saturate our minds with the word of God. That's why it's so important for us to come here on Sundays, to open our Bible, to have a pen out, to take notes, to say, I want to know God's word. Because God's word contains the mind and the thoughts of God and is the mind of Christ. That's why it's so important for us to daily walk with the Spirit, to be daily thinking about His Word, to meditate on His Word, to memorize His Word, to be enjoying fellowship with God through His Word so that His Word can, can change our attitude and our thinking so we can surrender to the, to whole, to the Holy Spirit in prayer. We can only have the mind of Christ when his word is in our minds and his Holy Spirit is controlling our lives. You can only have the mind of Christ when his word is in your mind and his Holy Spirit is controlling your inner person. So the question is, is God's word in your mind? Is God's spirit controlling your mind? Let me give it just an illustration to show what we're talking about. Now, as usual, when I give illustrations, I don't talk about anyone you know, unless it's my family. Sorry, guys. Christy, Michelle, you know what that's like. So anyways, this is not about anyone you know, but I know of a person who signed their kids up for sports. And the parents told the coach ahead of time, now, we don't have our kids play on Sundays. And it's our conviction that we don't believe that that's a day for us to have our kids play games. And so if we sign up, we just want to make sure you're okay with that. And the parent tried to explain to this coach that this is the Lord's day. This is set aside for the worship of the Lord and the gathering of his saints. And so the coach said, oh, no, that's fine. We understand. It's okay. But then throughout the season, at the end of the season, a big game came up. And many of the kids on the team were sick. And this game happened to be on Sunday morning. So the coach then came to the parents and said, you know, we really need your child to play. Um, if they don't play, we're not going to make it to the next round. And if they don't play, we're, we might lose. And the coach is like trying to convince the parents that, that their child should play. 
parents, though, believe that God's word called them to devote this day as holy. They believe that, that they should not forsake the assembling of their, themselves together, that, that God's church is his temple, which means it's holy. It's to be set apart for him. And the coaches plead. He's like, well, can't we just, can't we just read some scripture, scripture before? Can't we just pray together? We can just have a little church before the game, right? Or can't you just watch it on, on Zoom? But the parents know held their ground. They said, this day is, is a day for us, and we made this conviction. We have this conviction. We made this decision. Well, the team played, and they lost. And the team blamed it on that child. The coach blamed it on that child. And they couldn't understand why. Why is gathering on a Sunday morning so important? A holy day? What is that? You made us lose the game. That's what matters in life. Is it? That's what verses 14 and 15 and 16 are talking about. Natural people don't understand the value of worshiping like we are this morning. It's foolishness to them. But those who have spiritual minds, these these parents had spiritual minds discerning what they should do. And they could not be judged by these, by these kids in the team and by their coach because they don't understand the spiritual realities here. But the parents, they did because they understood the word and they had the Holy Spirit. And then last of all, the last response we have is a spirit-born person can be insensitive to the word if he follows his desires instead instead of the Spirit. This is the last response to the Word of God, and that is that a Spirit-born person can be insensitive to the Word if he follows his desires instead of the Spirit's desires. Look at verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. First notice in verse 1, he calls them brothers. So these are those who are in the family of God. These are Christians who have the Holy Spirit. Notice how he said this. He wrote, he could not address them as ones with the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit, but he couldn't address them as ones with the Holy Spirit. So he he says, he's he's not saying that you're of the flesh because you're unbelievers. He's saying you're, you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, but you're acting like you're of the world. You're following the desires of your flesh. So he couldn't address them as spiritual people because they were acting like they were unbelievers. Why were they? Why did he have to address them that way? Because they were following their own sinful desires. Look at verse 1. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Think about infants. They're so cute. Most of them are so cute, <laughs> so adorable, but they are immature, aren't they? Which means they live according to their instinct, instincts. So when they're hungry, what do they do? They cry. Most of them cry. When they have a wet diaper, what do they do? They cry. When they want something, they grunt. They cry. They can easily go from one extreme to the next, right? They can be happy, ha, 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 and then all of a sudden, ah, and they can... And why is that? They're immature. They're infants. They just go by how they feel. If they feel happy, they're laughing. If they feel tired, they fall asleep. Or sometimes they cry until they fall asleep. And so what he's talking about here is those who are acting immature. 
Paul said that the church of Corinth were like spiritual infants. They lived according to their fleshly instincts. When someone did them wrong, they got angry. When someone didn't agree with them, they gossiped, they criticized, they held a grudge. So again, look at verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready. Now, the milk and the solid food here is not talking about the content of Paul's preaching. It's not like really shallow preaching to really deep preaching. He's not talking about that. Chapter 2, he talked about the content of preaching. And what was that? The word of God. And the main message was Christ and him crucified. Paul was talking about the immaturity of how they received the word. Let me give you an illustration. When I was a sophomore in college, I went to a Bible college. I had the dean. Uh, the dean invited me into his office and had me sit down. And he told me that he was going to have a guy named Luke come be my roommate. Luke had just graduated from, or just graduated, he had just been released from the Pennsylvania State Penitentiary. He got saved in solitary confinement when he read a Bible in there. And the pastor who gave him that Bible decided the best thing for him to do was when he was released is to send him from Pennsylvania to Wisconsin to go to Bible college. And I was going to be his roommate. He walked into the room when I first met him, and he had his electric guitar. I went to a very conservative Bible college, okay? And he uh, said that he wanted to be a music major because he wanted to be a Christian rock star. If you knew the Bible college, you'd be laughing a little bit more. And I was supposed to keep an eye on him, make sure he didn't smoke anything he shouldn't smoke and do that kind of stuff. Um, genuinely, though, came to Christ and the point is, as I'm talking to him, honestly, I probably could have sat down for a week and listed all the problems in his life. But that wasn't really my job. I was trying to help him grow spiritually. He was spiritually immature. And interesting enough, he was a pastor for many years in California, and now he's out in Pennsylvania. So God clearly grew him up in the Lord. But the point is, is that how I interacted with him was a little different probably than how I interact with him today because he was a lot more immature back at that time. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. These, these people were acting in an immature way. In fact, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he describes his approach to, to ministering to them. And he, and he actually says, this is how you view me. You view me as timid when I'm face to face. In other words, they, they saw Paul's carefulness and how he dealt with them as him being timid. But actually what he was doing, he was saying, like, you're immature, so I'm, I'm trying to help you out. Think about a baby. When you feed a baby, you are very careful what you feed them, but also you're very careful <clears throat> how you feed them. You don't want them to choke on the food, right? That's Paul here. When Paul preached to them, he was, he was careful how he spiritually fed them. And they viewed his carefulness in dealing with their immaturity as weakness. But really, he was just being careful because he was trying to bring them along. But this letter now is five years after their conversion. And Paul's saying, okay, it's time to grow up. Like, you had your time of infancy. You're still acting like an infant, though. Grow up in the Lord. I babied you. I'm done with that. Now it's time for 
maturity. And what was the problem? Was the problem the preacher? Well, no, Paul was their pastor for 18 months. And then after that, at some point, was Apollos. I mean, you can't get much better than that. Was it a lack of knowledge? Absolutely not. Remember, these people consider themselves to be wise. They had all these spiritual gifts we're going to talk about later on in 1 Corinthians. So what was the problem? It was their hearts. It was the prideful, their prideful hearts, their desire to follow their own fleshly desires. And see, a spirit-born person can be insensitive to the word of God. You can listen to God's word right now, and it doesn't really mean much to you because you are following your desires, not the Holy Spirit. What were those desires? Look at verse 3. For you are still of the flesh. Probably a better way to translate that is you are fleshly. You are fleshly. You're not, you are controlled by your fleshly desires. You are still fleshly. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, so this is how this, this fleshly nature was, a fleshly desire was, um, was lived out and manifested. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So he's, he's saying they're manifesting their desire to follow their own flesh with jealousy, with strife. Jealousy is an intense desire to keep what is yours. Sometimes we mix up jealousy with envy. Envy is a feeling of resentment about something you don't have. Maybe somebody else has. But jealousy actually is an intense desire to keep what is yours. This word sometimes is translated zealous, zealously. So the problem in this church where people were jealous for themselves, for their own opinions. So the idea here is, is ownership. They thought their way was best, and they will fight to make sure their opinion is the one that's championed. So they followed their desires of jealousy and then also strife. This is the word that was used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, to address their quarreling. Remember in that context, Paul addressed their self-centered unity. Remember, everyone actually seeks unity. Self-centered people seek unity around themselves. And the fleshly person is the one who's controlled by his own desires, and he seeks unity around his opinions, and he's willing to fight, he's willing to quarrel, he's willing to divide, to get unity around himself. And church, this is played out in churches all across the country, every day, every week. There are people in the church who are, who are more about their kingdom and their opinions than the kingdom of God and his people. And it's also deceptive because it's, I follow Paul. I mean, that sounds godly, right? I follow Apollos. But it was just a way for them to fight and to build their own kingdom and to exalt themselves. This is a problem all across the country, all across the world, throughout time. But this is also a problem, frankly, for us. It's not just that person on the other side of the church that has this problem. All of us are tempted to follow our own sinful desires. We're all tempted to follow our, our own 
flesh and act like spiritual infants. So when are you acting like a spiritual infant? Well, you're acting like a spiritual infant when you gossip to this person and that. When you sit around a table and you, you criticize, you come up with negative comments about that ministry and that person. I don't like this. Do you agree with that? Can you believe this? Have you heard this juicy piece of gossip? You hold on to grudges. You divide and unify to yourself. You don't seek reconciliation. You hold on to issues, and you are going to fight for your way. And this is all pride. This is all self-exaltation. And therefore, when you act this way, when we act this way, when I act this way, we're acting like we're babies, spiritual infants. The most common problem in the church, you know what that is? You know what the issue, the issue in the church that causes sinful church splits, that causes people to leave the church? Do you know what the greatest danger to our church is? The greatest danger to your own spiritual life? It's this right here. It's following your own sinful desires. It's, it's not confessing your sin and not seeking reconciliation. It's when you... Act like a spiritual infant, and you complain, and you gossip, and you unite to yourself and your opinions. And there's a lack of humility. There's a lack of confession of your sin. And it might even be in the name of what's best for the church. I'm just trying to, to do what's best for the church. But it's a poison to the church. It's a poison to the church. And frankly, it's a poison to your own spiritual life. Let me end my sermon just kind of maybe illustrating this with a personal example. When I was in Bible college, we had chapel every day of the week. Well, Monday through Thursday. And I sat in the front row with a bunch of other college students, and you know, we had our Bibles out and we listened. And and these individuals with me, we were the ones doing Bible studies on the college campuses. We were the ones doing the kids' clubs. We were we were driving 45 minutes to church on Sunday morning, not coming till. That night, 45 minutes back. Wednesday, we would go out and come back. That was when gas was like only, what, like $1.50. Now, some of these college students, they do that now. And I'm just going to say one of the biggest blessings, side note, was when someone would come up and give me 20 bucks for gas. 20 bucks back then was a lot more money than, than today. A lot more money than next, probably next year, too. But anyway, that's a different story. The point is, we were very, very involved and we would listen to these men preach, these pastors that would come into the chapel. They would preach. And afterwards, we would go out. We would critique their sermon. Oh, he mispronounced this. Oh, do you think that he believes this theological doctrine? Well, that wasn't really an expositional sermon, was it? And so we would, you know, critique them. And in that semester, this is my sophomore year. This is the second semester of my sophomore year when this was really happening. I was really spiritually struggling. My walk with the Lord was weak. I felt spiritually anemic. And then one day I remember a professor came to our class and he addressed our class. And he pointed out that our criticism, our negative spirit was just pride. And we were acting like spiritual infants. I remember he asked things like this. I don't remember exactly, but things like this. When's the last time that you listened to one of those sermons and you went back to your room and you cried? You cried out to God because of your sin. 
When was the last time you sat in that chapel and you wrote down, here's, here's what God wants me to do? When's the last time you got with, got with other people and you just talked about the blessing of that sermon in your life? And it stung. He was right. I can remember going back to my room and having a time with the Lord. I can remember at some point, I don't know if it was in that moment, but I remember thinking back to my childhood. My dad was an assistant pastor for many years at that church. And I can remember just thinking back, and I, I remember recalling, I never remember my dad saying something negative about people in the church. I can never remember him, him complaining, coming home and complaining about things. I mean, and I think about it, especially as an adult now, my dad was severely underpaid and underappreciated. I mean, they had some very, very serious times of pain in their ministry. But I remember that, and I was, at that moment, I was remembering that and just thinking to myself, this, like, that was not a part of my childhood. That was not a part of my life. And I actually had a very joyful childhood. And I'm not a very joyful person right now. I can remember just thinking through all that and crying to the Lord and asking him to forgive me. And then you know what? Something happened that semester. That, the, the second semester of my sophomore year, God began to change my life. I went to a church like this and heard the sermons. And all of a sudden, I started going, oh, whoa, that's, I'm, I need to change that in my life. Or I want that for myself. I can remember that semester really was a pivotal semester in my life. God began to change me. And I realized that, that negative spirit was like a poison to my soul. And the truth is, church, I have times in my life that I revert back to that, where I start looking just negatively at things. I think about, oh, that person, what are they doing that? And why is this happening? And it's like, it's like swallowing poison for my spiritual soul. In those times, I need to confess my sin and cry out to the Lord for mercy. There are two categories of people in the world, those who are the natural people and those who are the spiritual people, those who are born again of the Spirit. But church, those of us who are born of the Spirit, Christians can so easily act like infants. We can fight, we can gossip, we can follow our own desires, and it's like a spiritual poison for our soul. So let's, as a church, let's repent of that. Let's confess that for what it is. It's sin against God. Let's saturate our minds with the word of God. Let's humble ourselves under the power of the Holy Spirit to live in daily submission to the Lord. And let's follow him. Let's pray.